This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for December 18th, 2017. Black Lives Matter and the high-profile deaths of a number of African-American men at the hands of the police have stormed onto the political agenda in recent times. In this podcast, I'm talking to an author who says that they shouldn't be there. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On the phone line now, I have Heather MacDonald. She's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor for City Journal. Her writing has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and many other publications. And her most recent book is called The War on Cops. Um, Heather, what is The War on Cops? Well, The War on Cops, Mr. Campbell, is predominantly ideological. It is uh, a narrative that has been spread very... uh, extremely and intensely for the past three or four years that holds that policing in the United States is systemically and lethally racist Mm -hmm. and that we're living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black males. That narrative is demonstrably false. Uh, I look at the data and show that, in fact, if anything if there's a bias in police shootings, uh, it works in favor of blacks and against whites, as hard as that is to believe, given what the media tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but however false that narrative, it's had a enormous effect on policing and crime. The nation in, in the United States has had a 20% increase in its homicide rate over the last two years, That's resulted in another 1,800 black males being murdered. Uh, And that's because cops now are facing almost unprecedented degrees of hostility and hatred in the streets. And having been told relentlessly that they are racist for engaging in the types of proactive policing that is uh, essential to lowering crime, and we can discuss later what is meant by proactive policing, mm-hmm. they're backing off. They're backing off of, of discretionary stops, of enforcing low-level uh, public order offenses. And and when cops back off in high-crime areas, crime goes through the roof. And uh, that's what we're seeing happening in the United States in urban areas. Okay, just to go back maybe to a couple of the statistics you mentioned, you said that the shooting particularly of black men is not as common as the media would lead us to believe. Now, however common it is, the statistics that I've seen, maybe you can correct me, maybe you can dispute them, the statistics that I've seen would indicate that a black man is nearly three times as likely to die from the police use of force as a white man. Do you accept that, or do you think that there's just more nuance to it? Uh, I don't really accept that when you take that into account of of crime rates, which is the essential benchmark, not population. 
for one thing, a, okay. A let's much let's let's percentage. have a look at that. Let's have a look at that because clearly, what I'm doing there is I'm saying obviously there are far fewer blacks than whites in the United States. So, in absolute terms, there are more white men shot than black men, but that's just because they constitute a much bigger chunk of the population. But if you distribute it proportionally, you're agreeing that proportionally by population, which may be correct or not, I would acknowledge. But you're agreeing that just distributed by population, a black man is much more likely to be shot dead than by the police than a white man. Well, the numbers are these. Uh, every year, the police shoot about somewhere between 900 to 1,000 people a year fatally. Mm-hmm. As, as we speak, as we speak today, the figure is nine hundred and seventeen. We're at the uh, in the second week of December. Okay, and about fifty fifty one percent of those victims are white, and about twenty five twenty six percent of those victims are black. Uh, you know, if you listen to the media, you'd think that all of the victims were black. In fact, the head of the Congressional Black Caucus got up in Congress last July. And said, well, as we all know, the vast majority of people shot by the police this year have been black. At that mm-hmm. point, uh, 25% of the victims had been black and 51% had been white. Mm-hmm. Now, that that 25-26% uh, share of, of the homicide uh, police victims who are black is more than the black population in the United States. Mm-hmm. But the relevant benchmark for any police activity, whether it's uh, stops or arrests uh, or warrants or, in fact, use of force, is crime rates. Police shootings are going to occur most frequently where the police encounter armed, violent, and resisting suspects, and that is in minority neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. In the 75 largest counties of the United States, which is where most of the U.S. population resides, blacks commit over half to about uh, two-thirds of all violent crimes in those 75 Pause on that. Counties. Pause on that for a second. You say that blacks commit, what percentage of, of crimes in those, in those counties? Uh, between, depending on what violent crime you're looking at, between over 50% up to two-thirds. Now, is that and the number of violent, no, Heather, Heather, is that the number of violent crimes that happen or the number of violent crimes that are detected? It's virtually the same thing. I mean, there, believe me, there are not uh, people being killed or, or shot who are not detected. Well, the crime may not be solved. Well, we have, in the case of of uh, robberies, we have uh, victim IDs. Whenever you do a national crime victimization survey, mm-hmm. v- victims identify their the race of their assailants in exactly the same proportion as uh, we get from arrest data. Okay. So okay. it's not the it's not a question of police bias. Believe me. Uh, well, well, can, can we have a look at that? White, there's not a whole bunch of white victims of drive-by shootings that are not getting uh, noted by crime statistics. Last year in Chicago, there were 4,300 people shot. Mm-hmm. That's one person every two hours. Those 4,300 people were overwhelmingly black. There were there were very few, if any, white victims. If there had been 4,300 white people 
shot in Chicago last We'd year. We'd have heard a lot more there about it. There would be a national revolution. Yeah, but, I agree. It, but the media doesn't give a damn because they're all black. Okay. Can I, Heather, I want to, I think that um, you're bringing important insights into the statistics here. And I want to uh, be very precise because I think that accuracy on this is very important. And one thing that you brought up, which I think is an interesting and important uh, issue, is that it is perhaps more relevant to not look at the ratios of black to white people in the population, but ratios of black to white people in their encounters with the police, particularly in uh, arrest type encounters where, where the, the person is, is uh, either a criminal or a suspect. And I think that's relevant to say. But one other figure that I think is really relevant on that is the ratio, for example, of drug arrests. We know from many drug studies that the pattern of drug use in the US is not very racially specific. Black people and white people use drugs at more or less exactly the same rates. But black people are dramatically more likely to be arrested for using drugs. What's happening there? Well, first of all, you're changing the subject. Uh, I I, I, may be. I'm trying to bring it back to to, to something relevant. but, But there is something happening there, isn't there? No, there's not. You know, though those use studies are self-reporting. Analysis has showed that when it comes to self-reporting of crime or drug use, mm-hmm. there's not as much honesty in the case of blacks. They look at, they ask, have you used drugs uh, over the past year or so? They do not look into frequency of use, uh, nor the seriousness of drugs. Drug enforcement is driven by community complaints. It's driven by community complaints about open-air drug dealing. Mm -hmm. You can go to any community meeting in uh, Harlem or central Brooklyn or south-central L.A., and you are going to hear some variant of this request. You arrest the drug dealers, and they're back on the corner the next day. Why can't you keep them off the streets? Mm-hmm. I've heard numerous times, I smell weed in my hallway. Why can't you do something about it? There's a nightclub outside my window. There's people hanging out there smoking weed. Why can't you do something about it? There's two books that have come out recently, uh, one by Michael Fortner, the other by James Foreman, uh, documenting the fact that drug enforcement has historically and still today been driven by the law-abiding residents of black neighborhoods who do not want to live with this scourge. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the police are somehow uh, turning their backs on the same types of open-air drug dealing that's going on in white neighborhoods. Though That dealing is not going on in white neighborhoods. They are Maybe it's not going people, on in the open air, but it might still be going on. But they're not getting they're not getting uh, complaints about it. Mm-hmm. Do you want the police to ignore the complaints that are coming to them from the law abiding residents of minority neighborhoods who feel like they are living under the pall of violence? And it is a pall of violence. Mm-hmm. Last year, eleven year old Takila Holmes was fatally shot in the head in Chicago by a 19-year-old marijuana dealer who was shooting at fellow rivals. We're supposed to believe that the marijuana trade is so pacific. Tell that to people who are living with this. Now, the reason I say that you're changing the subject 
because we were discussing police shootings. Sure. I would like to give a little more statistics to give you a sense of why police are engaged in the tactics they are in the neighborhoods they are. In New York City, for example, blacks are 23% of the population. They commit about 70 to 75% of all shootings, depending on the year. Mm -hmm. Add Hispanic shootings to black shootings in New York City, you account for 98% of all drive-by shootings. Whites are 34% of New York City's population. They commit less than 2% of all shootings. Mm -hmm. Brownsville, Brooklyn, which is a uh, probably all-black neighborhood, has a per capita shooting rate that is 81 times higher than a, another section of Brooklyn that's a few miles away that's white and Asian, mm -hmm. Bay Ridge. Now, that means that virtually every time the cops are called out on a shots-fired call, meaning they're being called to a neighborhood where there's been a drive-by shooting, they're being called to a minority neighborhood on behalf of a minority victim and being given the description of a suspect, uh, if anybody's complying for once, of a minority suspect. Mm -hmm. The cops don't wish these disparities. It's forced upon them by the reality of crime, but it is going to affect where officers are forced to use uh, their own guns in in response to shootings. And that is, in this country, almost exclusively uh, when you're talking about drive-by shootings in minority neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. Heather, I agree with you on a lot of what you're saying. And I think you're probably correct in saying that cops feel under siege and feel that they have a magnifying glass on them that is perhaps sometimes not justified. But I really find it hard to believe that there is nothing else going on. Because clearly there's there are different patterns of, of crime in different neighborhoods. But black people in the US, and I don't know how many black people you you know and and I know that black people and not people who live in really bad neighborhoods where you'd find uh, find uh, drive-by shootings, but black people who are middle class working people who don't live in a high crime area, they feel that they don't get fair treatment from cops. They don't that's not to say that they feel they fear getting shot, but they feel that they're going to get pulled over more often. They feel that if when they're pulled over they have some taillight or something broken on their car, they're going to be dealt with more harshly. And when they see black people getting shot, they feel that's a magnification of those minor day-to-day -day injustices that they feel that they're experiencing. Do you think that maybe it's not the shootings that are so, the, the shootings are not so uh, important in society and so notable because of their fact, but because of what they represent? Well, you know, there's, Cops need constant retraining in courtesy and respect, and they can develop extraordinarily obnoxious, hardened attitudes towards the public that need to change. Uh, but both of us, perhaps, are generalizing about black people, and I have no doubt that there's been stops that have been made where the cop has been surly and peremptory. But I can talk to you about some other black people as well. Mm -hmm. People like Mrs. Sweeper, a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx, who said to me, please, Jesus, send more police. The only time she feels safe to go into her building lobby is when the police are there. She says you can go down and talk to decent people. Otherwise, it's colonized 
by trespassing youth, hanging out, selling drugs, smoking weed, and she's terrified to go down. I can mm-hmm. tell you about an elderly lady in the 41st Precinct of the South Bronx who stood up during a police community meeting out of the blue, apropos of nothing, and said, how lovely when we see the police. They are my friends. There is an enormous support for the police in minority neighborhoods that never gets covered by the media because it doesn't fit the dominant narrative. If if people feel like they are being untreated fairly, uh, you know, that may be based on reality. It may also be because of this narrative. You can talk to black cops, mm-hmm. and they will tell you that if they pull over a black driver, the first thing out of that driver's mouth is, you only pulled me over because I'm black. Mm-hmm. And the black cop will say, no, I pulled you over because you ran that red light. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's there's perception and then there's misperception. Mm-hmm. And there's no question that we have a a narrative in this country that is saying that the police are systemically racist and therefore people are assuming uh, if, if they get stopped by the police, that it's out of racism. There was a study done in New Jersey uh, looking at speeding rates on the New Jersey Turnpike. Mm-hmm. Very, very sophisticated study. It, it had about tens of thousands of data points of different drivers and found that blacks speed on the New Jersey Turnpike at twice the rate of whites. And it speeds over 90 miles an hour uh, the disparity was even greater. So, you know, if you're going to be talking about driving while black, you have to look at driving behavior as well. And that has been something that has been completely taboo uh, because it means looking at behavior as a uh, determinant of police activity as opposed to racism. L- let me tell you, Heather, one thing that happened to me when I was younger that, that was really something that opened my eyes and it was just with a group of people and we were proposing to to uh, go somewhere and I, I suggested uh, going to a, a different neighbourhood. And my friend who was there, without any ceremony and in a very deadpan voice, just said, black people aren't safe there. And that was something that really struck me. And th- for certain, this was not something that, that uh, this person wanted to be saying. And it was, it, it was clearly a painful thing to say for this person. Cops are people. When you get a badge, you don't uh, you don't forget all of the culture that you come from. And there is racism in the U.S. And racism with a badge and a gun is that much more dangerous than than racism without a badge and a gun. Do you feel for black people when they they feel that there's just that level of victimization, a low level of victimization drip, drip throughout their life can make somebody very, very, uh, um, give somebody a lot of hostility towards the police. And that person was saying he couldn't go there because of the police or just it was a racist neighborhood and therefore because that was a racist neighborhood, the police, because they're human, must be susceptible to those same same types of racism the, the the import of it was that they could not go there because the police were of the the fear was specifically of the police from that neighborhood uh-huh and this person was a college student like you know a student the furthest possible image that you could get from somebody who might be involved in crime well if that was an accurate perception and he was he was uh 
accurately saying that he, as a black college student, was at threat from police officers in a particular neighborhood, uh, that would clearly be a, a gross violation of their sworn duty and our Constitution to provide equal protection of the laws. Mm-hmm. I, I I somehow doubt whether that was actually the case, um, but you know, if if that type of of extraordinary uh, murderousness and and bigotry exists, it obviously must end. I can tell you this, however, we have been having an obsessive discussion of alleged police racism in this country for the last 20 or 30 years in order not to talk about a far more difficult and more important problem, which is black crime. Mm -hmm. Blacks commit homicide in this country at eight times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. Take Hispanics out of that ratio and you get a, a white to black ratio, black to white, excuse me, ratio about 11 to 1. Blacks die of homicide at six times the rate of whites and Hispanics combined. Who's killing them? Not other whites, not the police, but other blacks. That is a problem. Mm -hmm. And as long as the black levels of crime remain what they are, a black New Yorker is 50 times more likely to commit a shooting than a white New Yorker. In Chicago, a black Chicagoan is 80 times more likely to commit a shooting than a white Chicagoan. As long as those disparities are so great, there is going to be more police presence in minority neighborhoods, more encounters, more demands from law-abiding people to enforce public order laws. If we could bring the black crime rate down to the white rate or heaven forbid to the asian rate i can guarantee you that this entire discourse would go away because it is ultimately policing is driven by crime we are a data driven in a data driven police culture now i, I agree with you other i think i think that leftists no there's no crime disparities whatsoever I think, Heather, I think I agree with you to a certain degree. I think that leftists have an uncomfortable time with some of the crime statistics that you're giving. And I, I think that there's an element to which uh, the the uh, very high profile, although relatively rare, shooting of black men by, by white policemen, there's an element to which that, that amount of attention is, is distracting from that. But would you agree that if you're a black person in the United States, it doesn't matter. First of all, it's possible that the black-white divide is not precisely the same as this high-crime, low-crime rate divide, and that in fact there are a huge number, probably the large majority of black people are middle-class, hard-working people who have no involvement in crime whatsoever, and they happen to be the same race as a, a number of people who are responsible for a very, very high, uh, a very, very disproportionate uh, uh, proportion of the crime. W- would you agree, agree that that's a possibility? Is it a possibility that crime is committed by a, 
a segment of a population, of course that's the case. And that there is but, a larger it, segment it of, the, the of the black communi- community who who have no responsibility or no excessive responsibility than the rest of the population. Well, about a third of all black men have a criminal record. So assuming that that means, I mean, a lot of crime doesn't get caught. But mm. so absolutely. I mean, you can go to community meetings and you will find good law-abiding bourgeois people who are demanding from the police that they get the same degree of freedom from fear as everybody else. And those are the people that I believe the police should pay attention to. Again, this if it were the case that blacks and whites had the same crime rates and then we saw different arrest rates or different shooting rates, then it would be time to talk about police racism. But as long as the crime disparities are so great, and and every time you take crime into account, criminologists have been trying to find systemic bias in the criminal justice system, and every time they take crime into account, they can't do it. In fact, a greater percentage of, of white and Hispanic homicide victims are killed by a cop than black Hispanics, black homicide victims who are killed by a cop, 12% of all whites and Hispanics who die of homicide are killed by a cop compared to 4% of black homicide victims who are killed by a cop. So Mm -hmm. if we're going to have an anti-cop Lives Matter movement, it would make more sense to call it white and Hispanic Lives Matter. And as far as being under threat for shootings, a police officer is 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a black male than an unarmed black male is to be killed by a police officer. Black males have made up 42% of all cop killers over the last decade, even though they're 6% of the nation's population. One other statistic, and I, I don't want to get too bogged down in statistics. It's difficult in an audio format for people to, to follow that always. But it's possibly interesting to look at what happens with women because although black men are dramatically more likely to end up in the in the criminal justice system than white men or than anybody else in the population, black women also are arrested and incarcerated at a far higher rate than white women. Isn't And we know that women commit drastically less crime than men in any case. But don't you think that there is a possibility of something there that when, for any given crime, somebody is more likely to be harshly treated, to get arrested for a very minor crime where they, you might be let off with a warning or to get incarcerated for a very minor crime where you might get a, a, a non-custodial sentence. Isn't it plausible that, that's, that, that that is, as well as the other things you mentioned, that that is also in the system? No. I, I, I mean, I, I suppose it's possible, but why do you think that uh, black women who also come from the same broken homes are not also committing crime at higher rates than white women. I mean, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. The reason I think so is because for the very, very least crimes, the most minor traffic offenses and so forth, the uh, that is where the arrest rate is most extremely different. Well, I, I would look at, I don't know about the arrest rate, 
Uh, for for, for, for but, but, offenses so, that, that, that could never you what? know justify justify incarceration, the arrest rate for the very very minor traffic offenses and so forth are enormously different, even for black women compared to white women. Okay, well, unless I I've unless you can show me what the underlying offense rate is, mm-hmm. I'm not going to conclude from police activity. Uh, that there is a bias problem unless you can show me that white women and black women are committing either low-level offenses or high-level offenses at the same rate. Mm-hmm. I, I don't and and you're, I don't know if you're talking about arrest or incarceration. When you take sentences, when you take criminal history into account, again, any disparities in sentence length uh, is is accounted for. No, I'm, I'm, I, the, the point that I'm making is that at the extreme uh, low end of seriousness, offences that would never justify incarceration, that's where the most extreme differential is. And it seems that, you know, where you have a very, very minor infraction, like a broken taillight or much less, you know, rolling over the line on a stop sign by a couple of feet, those sort of things. That's and they what, end up incarcerated for, no, arrested. for going through... Okay, and and in those in those type of offences, there's that's where the where the arrest, the disparity at the of the arrest rate is most is highest. And I I hear and what you you're saying. Be- you have a benchmark there that shows arrest rate to offence that these a certain number of offences are just getting a warning versus an arrest, or you are just seeing that there is more arrests for among blacks for broken taillights than there are arrests for whites for broken taillights. I mean, it may... Heather, it, you're, you're, you're talking about something that's extremely difficult to study, and one of the reasons it's difficult to study is because you mentioned murders and murder rates. Everybody knows what the murder rate is because nobody can, you know, nobody can, can fail to report a murder. As you go down through the less and less serious crimes, the likelihood of it being not reported increases. So the most serious crimes are the ones that are almost certain always to be reported. Uh, the least uh, serious crimes are much more likely to have dodgy statistics. But you can look at the rates and as you go lower in the seriousness level, the disparity between, particularly between black women and white women increases almost exponentially. So at the very, very lowest level, that's where the, you have the greatest disparity and where you have, uh, that, that does seem to indicate that for the same offence, black people are going to be arrested more, are more likely to be arrested in a situation where white people would not be arrested. No, I, you know, you say for the same offence, you you have no idea. until I don't know where you're getting this data. I've not seen this discussed. But in any case, you without a benchmark of the actual activity, you look at, do, do a drive along in the inner city. Mm-hmm. Uh, go with go out with the Cincinnati cops in Over the Rhine, and you are going to see driving behavior that you've never believed, wouldn't believe in your life. Uh, so I've seen it, I would, but I take me, your point. Okay, unless you give me a benchmark that there is equal behavior, I'm I'm just not uh, particularly moved to to conclude racism for different arrest rates. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I have no reason to think that that would be a different type of analysis 
than when President Obama, uh, three hours before five cops were assassinated in cold blood in Dallas, stood up in Poland and said, well, blacks were arrested at twice the rate of whites. Therefore, we've shown systemic police bias. Mm -hmm. Well, blacks being arrested at twice the rate of whites is completely in line with the fact that they commit homicide and violent crime and property crime uh, at magnitudes higher rates than whites, according to the victims of those crimes who are overwhelmingly minority themselves. Heather MacDonald, fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of The War on Cops. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, Mr. Campbell. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on December 18th, 2017. I have links to Heather's profile at the Manhattan Institute and a bunch of other information on the topics we covered in the show notes for this podcast on the website. And as always, if you have an idea of who I should be talking to or what I should be talking about, please get in touch with your suggestions. I really like to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you can do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes, give the podcast a rating and write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at ChallengingO and follow Heather MacDonald at HMDATMI. And most importantly, subscribe to the show for free. You can use Apple Podcasts or Google Play or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed for all of that on the website. And if you don't use a podcast app or software, you can subscribe by email. Just enter your email address on the Challenging Opinions website and each time a new show goes online, you'll get a simple email with a link to listen to the show. No spam at all, I promise. You can find all of that or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's Christmas Day, December 25th, I'll be talking to the comedian and writer Alex Kack about the difficulty of being a political comedian in an age of comedic politicians. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.